0: to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Over the last few weeks, I've been concentrating on the news right here in the US, the COVID-19 virus, and the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And we talked about how they were commandeered by Antifa, anarchists, Marxists, and socialists who were, as it turned out, not spontaneous at all, but were heavily funded and organized by people like George Soros and his Open Society Foundations. And then there were all the other unfolding stories, including the uncovering of the deep state and, of course, the upcoming presidential race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And these are all important stories because they are all developing into a perfect storm that will shape the foundation of our country for years, maybe decades. Now, what do I mean by a perfect storm? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, a perfect storm is a critical or disastrous situation created by a powerful concurrence of factors. And that, my friends, is what we are living with today. It began with the shocking impact of the Chinese coronavirus, when it first hit our shores in January. It came slowly, then more and more quickly until it overwhelmed us and changed the way we lived and worked, the way we educated our children, and the way we related to our family, our friends, our coworkers, and even to strangers. Then something else happened. In Minneapolis, George Floyd was killed by a city policeman in broad daylight on a city street in front of witnesses who took videos of the killing. It kindled what looked like spontaneous demonstrations by Black Lives Matter, and released the trigger for huge riots in cities throughout the country. And even in other countries, riots had been planned for a long time. And they were just waiting for the perfect moment for creating chaos with looting, burning, destroying, and creating an atmosphere of complete lawlessness. In Seattle, for example, and you know this, of course, a violent conclave was set up with the approval of the socialist mayor where police were not allowed. And then rioting in New York City destroyed whole city blocks of businesses which were looted and set on fire. And all this happened in the months leading up to one of the most important presidential elections in our lifetime. And that is happening right now. President Trump is being forced into a race with a barely-there candidate, former Vice President Joe Biden. Now, maybe Biden was once bright and ready for the fight. But from all appearances, he no longer is. His mind appears to be fuzzy, and his ability to follow a train of thought isn't really in question largely because of his tendency to continuously make serious gaffes when he is speaking in public. So the question is, why is the Democrat Party fronting him for this election? We'll get to that in a little bit. So now we have the perfect storm. And in this case, it is a combination of the Wuhan virus, the chaos in the streets, and the upcoming presidential election. So where do we begin? Let's start with the virus. I'll keep it short because we all know more about the virus than we would like to. It started in China, where it was designed in a virology lab in the city of Wuhan, and from where it was released, probably by accident, into the general population sometime in November. That's as much as we know about that. It spread rapidly in the region, but the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, which is the government of China, suppressed all the information about it, even among the Chinese people themselves, and they punished anyone who released any information about it. Then in mid-January, just before the Lunar New Year, which is a national holiday during which Chinese people love to travel, 5 million Chinese left the city of Wuhan, which has, by the way, a population of 11 million people, so that's approximately half the population, and many of them traveled abroad to places like Europe and the U.S. The Chinese government didn't say anything about the epidemic that was now running rampant in Wuhan, but they knew that anybody from Wuhan who was traveling abroad would very possibly be carrying the virus with them and would be likely to infect anyone with whom they came in contact while they were abroad. But still, the CCP told no one, and they unleashed a pandemic of the worst kind on the entire world. On January 31st, word started leaking out about the epidemic in China, but there was not a single case that had been identified in America. Nevertheless, President Trump ordered a freeze on all travel from China. It was too late, of course, and it was only a matter of time before the virus began to spread to every state in the country. I don't have to tell you what happened next. We all know it. We all experienced it in one way or another. Lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, closure of most small businesses and many large ones, and the daily counts of the sick and the dead. And fear. Fear. Fear of this virus with its ever-changing symptoms and no known cure or vaccine to prevent it. And one of the terrible consequences of these orders that forced us to stay at home in close quarters with our families for an extended period of time was the violence against our children and against each other that resulted in some families and spilled out into the street where others were hurt. Then came the death of George Floyd and the marches and the riots that followed. So let's talk for a minute about spontaneity. It's something that a person does on the spur of the moment almost without thinking. And sometimes, demonstrations happen on the spur of the moment, as they did in Minneapolis on May 25th. That was the day that George Floyd was killed. But what happened next wasn't spontaneous at all. The concept of staging spontaneous chaos isn't new. In the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations back in 2011, demonstrators took over key locations in a number of U.S. cities. They pitched their tents and they moved in. They were recruited from ads that were placed on Craigslist, asking for volunteers and offering to pay expenses and per diem. Demonstrators descended on the cities and set up camp, some for weeks. In Ferguson, Missouri... After the shooting death of Michael Brown at the hands of a police officer in 2014, the rioters came in from out of town and looted and burned the little stores, the mom-and-pop stores that were owned by members of the very community that the world was being told they were rioting for. Here is a perfect example of a fake news story about the riots in Ferguson, about how the people of Ferguson were so angry about Michael Brown's death that they were burning down their own neighborhoods. Only that is exactly not what happened. And it shows not only what the looters and arsonists were all about, that they were not local, but that they had been recruited in advance and were waiting for that trigger that would enable them to come into town and create havoc. It may be that Ferguson was a trial run and that the riots in Baltimore with the rioters and looters brought in to create the riots. So let's say that they were recruited. How did it work? Here's an example of a recruitment advertisement. The heading says, Movement Support Fund, application here. Organization for Black Struggle and Missourians Organizing for Reform and Empowerment are pleased to offer travel funding for individuals and grassroots groups that are working to advocate for police accountability and black lives. A fixed sum of $20,000 has been set aside for this initiative. Applications are fulfilled on a first-come, first-served basis until the fixed sum is exhausted. In your application, please honor the guiding principle that your funded work-slash-travel be collaborative and shared out with as many people as possible. Travel funding is available for individuals, $300, groups of three-plus people, $1,000, and large collaborations of six plus $2,000 to take trips that directly help attendees advocate for police accountability and black lives. Applications must be submitted two weeks before your departure date. Now, this is interesting because it looks like they were waiting for something to happen in Missouri. And we don't really know how this all connects, but... That ad appeared, and this is an example of how these organizations got people to come from other places and come together in the place where the riot was to take place. Now, my sources tell me that these outsiders are not the nicest people in the world, and in fact, they were mostly recruited from gangs and anarchist groups. This is their meat. This is what they love to do. So when they are called, they come, and if there's a group like Black Lives Matter that they can blend in with, even better— The idea is to riot, to loot, to burn, to destroy, to basically create a breakdown in law and order. And that is what happened in Ferguson in 2014 and in Baltimore in 2015. But these were single local riots. Now it was time for something bigger and broader in more than one city, in many cities, even internationally. And so it was. All they needed was the trigger. They were prepared. So when on May 25th, George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis cop, it didn't just go away. Killing Floyd was completely unnecessary. It was cruel. And judging from the videos, it seemed intentional. And so it was the perfect trigger for a spontaneous, that's in quotes, outcry and demonstrations in cities all around the country. But in no time at all, less than 24 hours, I think the peaceful demonstrators were replaced by violent rioters driven into town, in some cases in fancy cars, in cities all around the country. In New York City, rioters were ferried from place to place in $100,000 cars and SUVs. And in California, a luxury car dealer was attacked and 70 high-value cars were stolen in one night. These are not spontaneous attacks. They're highly coordinated events. The damage was excessive, and a lot of people got hurt. And when the looting and burning got old, when murder became the new trend, the CHOP encampment in Seattle was dismantled, and a new kind of destruction was put into play. Taking a leaf from Charlottesville, the violence in August 2017... The newest tactic was to pull statues representing the Confederacy off of their pedestals to destroy them if possible. This is supposedly a statement against anything having to do with slavery. Only it didn't take long for the mobs to pull down other statues as well that had nothing to do with the Civil War or slavery. Christopher Columbus, for example, because he brought the common cold with him from Europe and infected the indigenous people who had no immunity and who died from it. And Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, because they owned slaves. And they even faced a plaque dedicated to Paul Harris, who lived long after slavery had ended and founded the Rotary Club, one of the premier service clubs in the world, because, quote, he might have been a racist, which of course he wasn't, I talked about that last week. And the worst of all, this breaks my heart, vandals cut down a flagpole honoring 9-11 heroes. The illogic and downright stupidity of these mobs, destroying things they know and care nothing about for no apparent reason, leaves no doubt that this was destruction for its own sake, and the deeper significance that was supposed to be the theme and guiding principle was simply an excuse for violence. So now we've talked about two storms brewing. The first storm, the virus, which has caused enormous disruption throughout the country, has forced people to stay at home for weeks or months, has disrupted the economy enormously, and destroyed lives in the process, causing immeasurable hardship for Americans and a dramatic rise in violence in every part of the country. And the second part, The second storm is the one that was triggered by the death of George Floyd. In this storm, there are two groups of players. One in deeply motivated, if very naive, supporters of black rights, who marched peaceably and chanted slogans and carried signs, and they're still doing it, by the way, in cities all around the country. And the second, the highly motivated and possibly well-paid rioters, who drive the crowds to destroy property and create mayhem. Now, the third storm is the upcoming presidential campaign, which is getting nastier every day, and the sides that should be clearly drawn are muddied by the fake news and the inability of the Democratic candidate to mount a real campaign. It's all a muddle. Now, admittedly, Joe Biden won't be the official candidate until after the virtual Democrat convention in August but whatever campaign he has been trying to put forward has fallen flat in a mix of gaffes and a whole lot of silence. Joe Biden has been hanging out in his basement and wearing a mask when he appears on video, which has been the major part of his campaign so far. The only real campaign features on either side have been advertising, mostly Trump's, Trump's rallies in South Dakota and Tulsa, Oklahoma, And some Biden videos from his basement. So, where does that leave us, the American people, who will turn out to vote at the polls in November and cast our votes for one or the other candidate? Well, it essentially leaves us with two months following the conventions in which to measure up the two candidates and make a decision about our vote. And it will be an important vote. Every vote will count. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, This election will matter. As I've said before, this is going to be the most important election in our lifetime. You see, if you're a Democrat or a disaffected never-Trump Republican, the choice will be easy. Joe Biden is the only real choice, and he'll get a lot of votes. But if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, a MAGA supporter, a Trumper through and through, Your choice is also clear, and Donald Trump will get your enthusiastic vote. So after the break, I'll talk some more about the third element that makes this situation a perfect storm and get into what may make each candidate worth voting for. And I'll tell you what I think will happen next.
1: Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio.
2: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way.
0: how the choice for died-in-the-world re- Democrats and died-in-the-world Republicans would be easy, relatively easy, because they will vote for the candidate representing the party that they have always voted for. But for the rest of America, for the rest of the people who are going to the polls and have to make a choice, it may not be so clear. The virus that has disrupted our lives and the riots that have frightened so many Americans, they have made our choices much more difficult. And those Americans who vote for the candidate instead of the party, those voters who consider the issues seriously, those voters may have a much harder time. So let's take a look at the candidates. Now, granted, my view is biased. I'm a conservative. You all know that. And so my preference should be clear. But in the interest of fair analysis, which is what I tried to do, I did some research, and here's what I found. First, let's take a look at the president. He has had an uphill battle since he first announced his campaign. He's been fighting the mainstream press, whom he has dubbed fake news. They've targeted him relentlessly with negative reporting from day one. And he has also been targeted by the political left, specifically the Democrats in Congress, with endless investigations and impeachment hearings based on false allegations. And yet, if you look at the president's accomplishments despite all the aggression from the left, they're really amazing, and the list is very long. Here are just a few. In 2018, under Trump's energy policies, America became the world's largest producer of crude oil, making us energy independent for the first time in our history. And the U.S. also became a net natural gas exporter for the first time since 1957. In March 2019, Trump signed the biggest wilderness protection and conservation bill in 10 years. This bipartisan bill designated 375,000 acres of wilderness in California, expanded Death Valley and Joshua Tree National Parks, and added 2.4 million acres of public lands and water overall. In June 2019, the president signed an executive order that requires all health care providers to disclose the cost of their services so that Americans can be informed about the price of health care provision. In June 2017, Trump created a White House VA hotline to help veterans. By November, it was fully functional on a 24-7 basis. It was mostly staffed by veterans as well and by direct family members of veterans. Then in 2018, President Trump signed the First Step Act, which was a criminal justice reform bill that addressed inequities in sentencing law that disproportionately harmed black Americans. And it also expanded judicial discretion in the sentencing for nonviolent crimes. Over 90% of those who received retroactive sentencing reductions in the First Step Act were black Americans. Did you know that since Trump took office in January 2017 and before the sudden coronavirus pandemic in early 2020, the overall poverty rate fell to a 17-year low of 11.8%? and the poverty rates for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans reached their lowest levels since the United States began collecting such data, and consumer confidence and small business confidence was at an all-time high. In the Trump economy, more than 7 million jobs were created, more Americans were employed than ever recorded before in our history, and more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs were created. The jobs Obama said were never coming back. Since he became president, Trump finalized new trade agreements with South Korea, Japan, and with Mexico and Canada together. He also secured $250 billion in new trade and investment deals in China in the first phase of that trade deal, and a $12 billion trade deal with Vietnam. And one more thing it was on his watch that over a dozen American hostages were freed. And Trump also began building his promise wall at our southern border. And he also directed the education secretary to end Common Core, which was probably the worst educational program in American history and a compelling argument against federal control of education. I could go on, but you you get the idea? Even the Washington Post published a column by former Bush speechwriter and columnist Mark Deason who agreed that Trump had been successful at keeping his campaign promises. He wrote, quote, the fact is in his first two years, Trump has compiled a remarkable record of presidential promise keeping, unquote. And I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, now let's take a look at Joe Biden's accomplishments during his 48 years in government office. In order to be as fair as possible, I did a fair amount of research to find out what Biden had really accomplished in his long career in elected office. It wasn't nearly as much as I hoped to find because I really wanted to create some sort of comparison it was tough. But here's what I did find. After serving for 2 years on the Newcastle County Council in Delaware, Biden won a surprising upset victory for a seat in the U.S. Senate at the age of 29. But before he could take his seat, his wife and 13-month-old daughter were killed and his two sons were hospitalized when a tractor-trailer plowed into their station wagon. Still, he went to Washington commuting from Delaware so he could take care of his two sons, and he ultimately served in the Senate for 30 years, including eight years as chair of the Judiciary Committee and four years as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He also ran for president twice himself, but his campaign in 1988 was cut short by a plagiarism scandal, and he tried to run against Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders early in the 2016 election. He later served eight years in the White House as vice president under Barack Obama. Jim Kessler from Third Way said about him, quote, he's always been a solid mainstream Democrat who was able to get a lot of things done, unquote. Well, it seems that that is not so true anymore. Because as I said, I did a lot of research to find out exactly what he had accomplished in his long public career, and I found some things. He played a key role in passing the Brady Bill and assault weapons ban through the Senate in 1994, and four years earlier, he sponsored the Violence Against Women Act, which challenged the long-held attitudes that domestic abuse was a, quote, family matter, unquote, and prevailing opinions that victims of sexual abuse brought it on themselves. Biden had dozens of women tell their stories, and the bill finally passed in September 1994 and criminalized behavior that was once thought to be acceptable. Biden calls it, quote, my proudest legislative achievement, unquote. During the Bill Clinton era, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Biden pushed through a number of bills dealing with crime, including opening community centers on the weekends to give teenagers a safe place to hang out. But these bills also contained what were later thought to be excessive penalties for relatively moderate crimes, and that led to the imprisonment of minorities in far greater numbers than was reasonable. Biden is known to have said some Some things about race and women that today would be considered very politically incorrect and unacceptable. Just as recently as last year, he was accused of snuffling the hair of women when he stood behind them. Very strange. He also made some racially insensitive remarks throughout his career. As recently as a few weeks ago, when he told his audience from his basement that if a person of color chose not to vote for him, he said, you ain't black, unquote. As vice president during the Obama years, Biden was active in promoting the passage of the Affordable Care Act and creating the stimulus package, which required borrowing money to build infrastructure. Now, how do you measure Biden's many years of experience in government with his limited number of accomplishments, with Trump's three and a half years of experience in the White House, and his long list of accomplishments that seem to be too many to count? You might say that in his role as president, he had the authority to do things that Biden never had the authority to do. True. But is that enough of an excuse to give Biden a pass? And consider this. Biden has been accused of sexual misconduct, but so has Trump, so that's a wash. But Biden has admitted in public to using his position as vice president to curry favors for his son from foreign countries, in this case Ukraine. He boasted about using a billion-dollar loan guarantee as leverage to ensure that the prosecutor who was looking into a company on whose board of directors his son, Hunter, sat and Joe Biden, vice president of the United States, threatened to withhold this United States government guarantee unless they fired the prosecutor who was investigating the case. He bragged about it in public on video. That, my friends, is pure corruption, and it's illegal. So here's my point. The experience that these two men bring to the contest for president is strikingly different. And that's a good thing because it gives Americans a real choice. But that choice is made much more difficult by the politics that surround these campaigns that are so nasty that they cloud the facts with unfounded accusations, innuendos, and fake news that are designed to cloud the real issues and may or may not have anything to do with what really worries Americans most. It used to be that when we had two candidates running against each other for the highest office, we knew what they stood for. And what they stood for was usually different, and we knew what our choices were. But today we only know one candidate, And we know what his positions are because he makes them clear and because he's already shown us what he intends to do. That's Donald Trump. He's been showing us for the last three and a half years. But Joe Biden is a different story. He doesn't seem to have a platform, although he is slowly, slowly coming out with one. And his last effort was to say that his platform is going to be based on, quote, made in America, unquote. Well, that is something coming right out of the Donald J. Trump playbook. When Joe Biden first became the only candidate left standing from a field of 27, he seemed to be a centrist. But since then, he seems to have been slowly shifting to the left of center and in some cases, to further left of center than anyone ever thought he could possibly go. And there is, of course, something else. The two men are not far apart in age. Donald Trump is 74 with a seemingly endless supply of energy. And Joe Biden is 77. Not much different chronologically, only four years But there is another factor that people cannot help but notice. Trump loves to vent his moods on Twitter and often says things that people think are really stupid or silly. But he seems to have an endless supply of energy. And it's said about him that he only sleeps four hours a day and he goes from Washington to rallies to uh, business meetings to conferences with no apparent fatigue at all. But there's another factor that people cannot help but notice, because while Trump loves to vent his moods on Twitter and often says things that people consider to be inappropriate for a president, Joe Biden makes real gaffes, as when he announced that he was running for U.S. Senate and wanted the audience to look him over, or when he told a group of people in Pennsylvania, quote, People don't have a job. People don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Now we have over 120 million dead from COVID, unquote. Really? 120 million? He meant 120,000. And it's a mistake that those of us who are arithmetically challenged could make. But he's running for president. And his latest was a bit in which he said that we need to find better ways to get our kids to market swiftly. That was a head shaker. What in the world did he mean? Was he talking about goats getting our kids to market? Was he talking about taking our kids shopping or selling them? I guess the point is that, in contrast, although He sometimes says some annoying and even strange things. The president is still very sharp and seems to have his mental faculties well in check. With Biden, though, it's a different story. What seems clear to me, and I hope you won't mind a little surmising on my part, is that Joe Biden is having a really hard time holding it together. He appears to be suffering from some form of early-stage dementia. And this man wants to be president. If this is true, it's really a very sad story and nothing that anyone should be making fun of. If you've ever had this in your family, and I have, it's nothing to laugh at. But at the same time, if this is the case and we are facing the possibility of a man becoming president who isn't capable Of carrying out the grueling work that is going to be required of him, then we all will be having a very serious problem. He seems to be unable to focus on whatever is going on, whatever he's trying to say. He not only loses words, he loses whole thoughts. He loses his train of thought. And if this is what it appears to be, then we are facing a very difficult situation. So after the break, I want to talk to you about what I think is really going on, as I said, and what it means and how we, the American people, are going to deal with it. And after all that seriousness uh, is finished, I want to take you on a quick trip around the world and visit some of the places we really haven't talked about very much on a lightning round of news stories that have happened over the
1: last two weeks. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, The time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new, easy-to-swallow sleep gel, invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell, is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com slash sleep. That's HealthyCell.com slash sleep.
0: When the China virus and Black Lives Matter demonstrations and riots burst into our lives in the middle of a presidential campaign, we found ourselves caught in a vortex of a perfect storm. And this Perfect storm is going to make a difference. It's going to have an impact on the outcome of this presidential election. Before the break, I was talking about the two presidential candidates and I suggested that Biden's seeming inability to think coherently and maintain his focus on what he is saying, I found that disturbing on more levels than just the obvious. Because what I think is happening is cynical and corrupt. And it's under the surface. It's not something that we're going to be able to see. But I think we should be aware of the possibility because the stakes couldn't be higher. Joe Biden, despite his gaffes and apparent bouts of incoherence, is roundly supported by the DNC. And my question is, why? Are they propping him up and assisting him in every way possible in order to be in control if he makes it to the White House? And here's another thought. Is it possible that once Joe Biden is in office, they plan to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove him from office? The 25th Amendment states, quote, In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become the president, unquote. And then it goes further as it describes the process, quote, Whenever the Vice President and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the President pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the President is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the Vice President shall immediately assume those powers and the duties of the office as acting president." Unquote. And in this specific case, the vice president would be someone who has been hand-picked by the DNC, someone they can work with, someone they feel they can control. Now, mind you, this is just a theory, it's my theory, but if it is true, if this is really what the DNC has in mind, it's a conspiracy, and we need to watch it carefully. Remember that it was the DNC that, together with the Clinton campaign, paid for the Steele dossier that was pure fiction, but it was used to fabricate a case for the warrants that allowed the FBI to spy on private American citizens. There's a good reason to suspect the DNC. And now, I promise to try to put all this together and explain the perfect storm that we're now living through. Because all the pieces, the different pieces, are affecting each other. And we need to wrap our heads around what is happening to us. Our country is in crisis. The China virus is disrupting our lives in all the worst ways. We're getting sick. Some of us will never recover. Some of us will never go home. There are people who are afraid to go out, to be with other people, to go back to work. Some of us have to go back to work, and that, for some, is terrifying. Our children need to go back to school, but parents worry if they'll be safe. We are all caught between a rock and a hard place. Life needs to return to some kind of normalcy, but the reality is that until there is a cure for the virus, until there is a vaccine to protect us from it, we cannot go back to true normalcy. And now the CDC is telling us that this winter, when the flu season arrives, it's going to be double jeopardy and worse than ever. And then there are the demonstrations and the riots, the mob scenes in which people expose themselves to both the virus and the violence, virus and violence, not a happy combination. They call for defunding the police. And in the places where that has happened, The crime rate has shot up. On the 4th of July weekend, just as an example, the statistics were appalling. 87 people were shot in Chicago. 17 of them died. In New York City, 64 people were shot over the 4th of July weekend. In June, in New York City, 270 people were shot and 39 of them died. The city hasn't seen so many shootings in 24 years. That was back in 1996, when nearly 3,000 people were shot and 1,000 of them died. Officials say that all of the homicides in New York involved minority victims, and 88% of the slayings occurred on the streets at least 25 people were shot in Philadelphia over the 4th of July weekend, and five of them died. And in Atlanta, at least 23 people were shot that weekend, including a little eight-year-old girl, Sicoria Turner, who was among five people who were killed. The shootings came as protesters ironically attacked the Georgia Department of Public Safety headquarters. They threw rocks at the windows, spray-painted graffiti on the walls, And then they lit a fire with fireworks. The violence was so bad that the next day after the weekend was over, Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, declared a state of emergency and activated 1,000 National Guard troops to help restore order to the streets of Atlanta. So what is happening to America? There are several factors at work here. People are reacting to the super strict closure laws in the cities run by liberal mayors and governors closures that made them stressed and anxious and downright crazy. The worst riots and the most shootings have been happening in cities like Chicago, New York City, Philadelphia, Seattle, Portland, and Washington, D.C. And it gets worse because then, because of the virus, criminals have been released from prisons all over the country where the rate of the coronavirus infections have been spreading rapidly. So instead of being incarcerated, the criminals are now back on the streets. And in cities like New York and Seattle, where police departments are already being defunded to some extent, the law enforcement resources are much more limited every day. Because the police officers are also starting to feel the tension and the stress, and they're beginning to resign in growing numbers. So here's already a correlation between the virus and the growing crime rate. Now the presidential election is adding to the dysfunction, as Biden is credited for slamming the president for what his campaign calls a politician who sees his re-election slipping away from him. And his campaign criticized, quote, his botched response to the coronavirus pandemic, unquote. Well, that's a lot of rubbish. I don't think Trump is the least bit disturbed about his ratings. I doubt that he even looks at the polls. That's just fake news. Still, there are two things that are interesting about this because first of all, there are many of us who think the president didn't botch things at all that he actually did more than anyone ever expected him to do in the face of this enormous crisis. No, Biden is wrong the president did not botch his response to the coronavirus pandemic. How dare you, Joe Biden and your crew? Donald Trump did more than what might have been expected by supplying cities around the country with much needed medical equipment that was in such short supply. And he urged manufacturing companies to retool their production lines to produce ventilators and PPE for the medical staff who were risking their own lives every day to care for the COVID-19 patients. He even sent hospital ships, huge hospital ships, to New York City and Los Angeles in order to provide extra beds when the expected surge of patients threatened to overwhelm the city's local hospital. No, Trump did not botch his response. But New York Mayor de Blasio did when he left the ship virtually empty in New York Harbor. And Governor Cuomo did as well when he ordered nursing homes to accept active COVID-19 patients, even though the residents of the nursing homes were elderly and therefore extraordinarily vulnerable. Throughout the state, as a result of Cuomo's executive order, More than 6,000 nursing home residents died of the virus as a result of that order because they were trapped and they could not leave. And it was particularly egregious because the hospital ship was available to accept patients, but the state refused to send the patients to the ship. In the response that they gave to the nursing homes was that only hospitals can refer patients to the ship. To my mind, Cuomo not only botched his response to the virus, he was criminally liable for the deaths of over 6,000 people, people who were trapped in the nursing homes and could not escape. This is another case where the politics and the virus meet in this terrible vortex of the perfect storm. We Americans are a strong people. And those of us who love this country will not be able to stand the violence and the anarchy that has attacked our city streets for very much longer. The storm is like a hurricane, wild and destructive on the periphery, but calm and silent in the center. And this center is where the heart of America must be. We must stand up for what we believe, and we must fight for it with all our might not through violence, although violence will no doubt be an unavoidable part of it, but through the imposition of law and order. Last week, I wrote an open letter to the president in which I said, Mr. President, it is time to take our country back. Mob rule, anarchy, Marxism, socialism, and the chaos that they bring have no place in America. We're better than that. It is time for you, Mr. President, to assert whatever authority the law allows to end the chaos that mob rule has brought to our country and to put America back on its path to the future. And if you want to read the whole of this letter, you'll find it on this website, americaoutloud.com. And even as I beseech the President to take the reins of government firmly in hand, and bring this country back from the brink. I also turn to my fellow Americans to join me in the battle to save America from the divisiveness that is tearing us apart. We all fight in different ways. I can no longer march with demonstrators, and in the face of this pandemic, I no longer travel very much either. For me, the pen, or rather the computer, is my weapon and words are my ammunition. If I can inspire you, my friends, to join me, and Malcolm, and his team of patriots at America Out Loud, and fight for the America that we all love in whatever way you can, then I shall know that I have done my work well. We should not be the last in the long and honored line of patriots who fought and died so that we might have the freedom to fight for what we believe. I will not agree to give up my country to socialism. I will not agree to turn over the country that I love to anarchists and vandals. If it is within my power to stop it, I will not allow the detestable cancel culture to win and our republic to fail. I will continue to speak and to write as long as it is within my power to communicate. So stand with me. This is America, land of the free, home of the brave. But America is in danger today, and it is we who must shoulder our arms and save her, so that our future generations will also be able to savor the sweet taste of liberty. Now, today's show has been all about the trifecta that has taken over our lives, the perfect storm. But there has been other news in the world. So, in the few minutes that I have left, I want to give you a quick trip around the world with headlines from the last 2 weeks that we will no doubt be talking about next week on the Friedman report. Unless, of course, a big story breaks and I need to focus on that. Okay, so fasten your seatbelts, here we go. First stop, Iran. Explosions rock the Natanz nuclear plant in Iran. This was one of a series of mysterious explosions at strategic Iranian sites in recent weeks. And of course, either the U.S. or Israel, or both, have been blamed. The damage from this blast was thought to have been extensive, and intelligence analysts have suggested that it might have set the Iranian program back as much as two years. That's good news. Next stop, North Korea. North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, hasn't been seen since April. So the story today is that his sister has made an announcement, Kim Yo-jong. She said her country has no intention of threatening the U.S., that they won't be holding another summit with us, and that denuclearization is not possible at this point in time. She said something equally puzzling, that another summit between leader Kim Jong-un and U.S. President Donald Trump this year is not likely, but, quote, a surprise thing may still happen, unquote. That could be just about anything. Will Kim Jong-un come back to life? Will Kim Yo-jong become the new leader of North Korea? What do you think? Next up, Hong Kong. A respected virologist and immunologist at the Hong Kong School of Public Health, Dr. Lee meng Yun, has given up everything and fled Hong Kong in order to reveal to the West that she believes the Chinese government knew about the COVID-19 virus well before it claimed it did, but refused to tell the world. One of her friends, who was also a scientist, had first-hand knowledge of the cases and purportedly told Yan on December 31st about human-to-human transmission well before China or WHO admitted such spread was possible. In fact, whose director denied it until January 22nd, a whole month later, when he acknowledged that there was evidence of human-to-human transfer. So much for Chinese honesty. Next stop. Israel This is a nice story about a Hamas officer who escaped to Israel after spying for the Jewish state for eleven years. Unconfirmed reports claim that he escaped to an Israeli military boat, and he brought with him his laptop, surveillance equipment, and quote classified documents, unquote, which might be harmful to Hamas. There's some disagreement as to whether the man was a senior commander in Hamas's elite naval commando force. Or just a junior officer in the unit, but that is less important than the material that he brought with him if it contains valuable intelligence. Of course, Hamas denies it, but word is that they are seriously cleaning house, and that is never good news for Hamas operatives because of what it means. Latest word is that Hamas has arrested sixteen of its own members, mostly from its military wing. They have been detained on suspicion of spying for Israel. And that is not good news for them. Okay, well, time has flown, as always. And we are at the end of our show. Have a good week. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. This is the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and you've been listening to The Friedman Report.